0: So, the Mandy in Mandy Thursday, that's spelled M-A-U-N-D-Y, the mandi is taken from the Latin root uh, mandatum, or commandment, and that's taken from John chapter 13, verse 34, uh, where Jesus says to His disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Uh, And the backdrop of this commandment is the Last Supper. Uh, It's called the Last Supper because it literally is the final meal that Jesus will have with His disciples before He's crucified, uh, just a few hours after this moment. And the backdrop of that Last Supper is that it's a Passover meal. And the Passover commemorated the most important moment in Jewish history, which was the Exodus from Egypt. Uh, Hundreds of years, well over a thousand years before Christ, the Jewish people were in bondage. Uh, They were in slavery. Uh, The Egyptians had brutalized them and abused them. It was a bitter time for the Hebrews. They began to cry out to God for help, and their cries were heard by God. And God raised up a man named Moses to be their deliverer, to be their prophet, to be a mediator between God and the people. And Moses goes to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, uh, speaking God's word to Pharaoh, and he demands to Pharaoh that that he let the people go, that he release the Jews from bondage. Pharaoh digs in his heels, and he refuses. And as you read through the first half of the book of Exodus, you'll see the amazing story of how God, through Moses, begins to work incredible miracles and signs and wonders. If you've never read the book of Exodus before, put that on your bucket list to do really soon, like in the next few days. That would be a good thing to do. It's an incredible book. And these signs and wonders are coming upon Egypt. God is striking Egypt. And uh, they're they're terrifying plagues upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And yet, even after Egypt is devastated through the power of God… Pharaoh continues to hold on to his Jewish slaves with an iron grip, and he continues to dig in his heels, and he refuses to let the people go. And God then says that He's going to unleash a final plague on Egypt, and after that, they will finally relent, and they'll let the Jews go. And the plague is a plague of death. God says that in an act of judgment, He's going to send an angel of death throughout the land of Egypt. And, and, the, and He's going to strike down the firstborn son in every household. God says this is going to happen to the firstborn of everybody, the firstborn of the servants, all the way up to the firstborn in the household of Pharaoh, and everybody in between. No one is exempt from this judgment of death. In one sense, God shows gracious restraints in not obliterating everyone, uh, just the firstborn. The Bible says the wages of sin, the wages of rebellion against God is death. But in another sense, the judgment is is still widespread, and it's, it's comprehensive in the sense that everyone is affected, everyone is visited with death. Every home and every family will suffer the sting and the pain and the horror of death. Now, the firstborn was very significant in ancient times. The firstborn was uh, the preeminent one in the household. it was the, the firstborn who had received the, the family's inheritance. All the hopes and dreams that a, a family would have towards their their future were bound up in the firstborn. And, and God is saying in this judgment that that I am cutting you off from the next generation. I'm cutting you off from your future. He says, Israel is my my firstborn son. and and, and, if, and essentially, if you are messing with my firstborn, I'm going to take your firstborn. But as is, as is consistent with the Bible's picture of God, God is not only a God of judgment, but He's also a God of grace and mercy. He loves to show mercy. And He provides a means to escape that judgment, and the means is substitution. God says to the, to the Israelites, if you want to be saved, if you want to be free from the judgment of death, take a lamb without blemish, bring it into the household sacrifice the lamb, take the blood, put it on hyssop, and apply it to the doorpost. And why? Well, he says in uh, chapter 12 of Exodus, verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And in all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood… I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Notice that God does not say, Don't worry about it, you're Israelites, you'll be fine. Instead, God treats Israel as those who, just like the Egyptians, are a people worthy of death and who cannot escape death unless there is the shedding of blood, because they're sinners too. And so it's not just slave driving Egyptians are under this threat, this death threat of God's judgment. Everyone who has sinned and rebelled against God, which is everyone on the planet, regardless of race or culture or background, deserves to die. Again, the wages of sin is death, but the way to escape death, God is teaching us here in Exodus 12, is substitution. We've got a substitution that's being made. You have a death, Instead of the, the firstborn dying, you have a lamb dying. And notice it's not just that, that there's a, a sacrifice that is made. Uh, it, it's not enough that a lamb was slain. If all a household has is a, is a dead animal in it, a slain lamb, the household would still suffer judgment. It's not just that a sacrifice is made, it's the sacrifice applied. And when the Israelites sacrifice this lamb and apply the blood to the doorposts of their homes, this is, act, this is an act of repentance and faith. It's an act of repentance because they are recognizing that they too are sinners, and when they slit that lamb's throat, they're confessing that they were in the same boat as the Egyptians. That they were under the threat of of the judgment of death, just like the Egyptians, and that they could not be saved by their own race, their own merit, their own goodness. But it's also an act of faith when they applied that blood to the doorpost, because they're, they're essentially saying, I believe that when I go to bed tonight, when I wake up in the morning, my firstborn's heart is still going to be beating. I trust and I believe in the promises of God. I know there's nothing else I can do. There's nothing I can do to save myself. Instead, I trust in God's provision for salvation and His provision to rescue me from death. So, when the angel of death passes over the house and he sees that blood that has been applied to that doorpost, he sees it And he moves on. He passes over that house. That's where the term Passover comes from. I'm sure you're smart people. You figure that out. You already know that. The angel passes over that home, and he does not execute judgment on the people because blood has already been spilt. Judgment is already seen to have been taken place in the spotless lamb. Judgment has already been visited to this house. And during that night, the Passover meal was instituted. And in that meal, they ate bread. It was called the bread of affliction. It was a reminder of the sufferings and the bondage they experienced as slaves. And they drank wine, which pointed forward to the blessings of God and the joy that would come through deliverance. And so that first Passover meal was a look backwards, and it was a look forwards. And in the wake of the Passover, Pharaoh finally releases the Hebrews from slavery God preserves those who trust in Him from the judgment of death, and after preserving them safely through the judgment, He leads them to Mount Sinai. And He says to them, I've delivered you from bondage, and you are My people, and here is how you are to live. And God gives them commandments. He gives them the law. And that whole law is summed up in two commands, love God and love your neighbor. And he makes a covenant with the people and says, I'm going to bring you into a good land. I'll be your home. I'll be there with you. And if you continue to obey and follow me, all will go well with you. But if you turn away from me in rebellion, I will judge you as I've judged the Egyptians. And if you read the rest of the Old Testament, you will see that in spite of God's consistent love and mercy and patience and grace and blessing towards Israel, Israel consistently disobeyed God. It gets kind of frustrating as you, as you keep reading the story and the, and the cycles of, of sin and, and rebellion. Now, of course, there are always a handful of people that remained faithful to God. Al- there was always a tiny remnant, people like David, Elijah, Daniel, and others. And when you step back and you take a look at the nation as a whole, it was largely faithless and apostate. The people failed to love the Lord their God with all of their heart and mind and soul and strength, and because they failed there, they also failed to love their neighbor as themselves. And the people suffered severe consequences for their sins, including exile from their homeland. Eventually, as you continue following the story in the Bible, many of the Jewish people returned to Israel from their exile, but they did not learn their lesson. Uh, The people continued to rebel against God. They, They continued to not love one another, and in spite of all their rules and all their laws and all their ways of being religious, they continued to fail God. And the reason why was because they were still slaves, not slaves to a foreign power, not slaves to an evil, wicked human king, but slaves to their own sin. The main problem was not outside of them. We, we tend to think that's our, our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is outside of ourselves. But their biggest problem and our biggest problem is the problem inside of us, the problem of our sinful hearts. And the old covenant that God made with the people and the law that He gave was insufficient in providing the people with the power to keep that covenant and obey that law. And so it would seem that Israel had reached a dead end. But God, in the midst of their sin, provided a glimmer of hope. This is where we turn a corner and we start seeing some rays of light in the story. If the old covenant was not ultimately the solution, that means it must give way to something new. And God, through the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah, made the spectacular promise in Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I'll be their God. They shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You see what God is promising there? That that the new covenant would create a new people with new hearts, And unlike the Old Covenant, where only a handful of people love the Lord within a largely faithless nation, the New Covenant foresees a coming community where everyone in that community will have God's law close to their hearts, where all will know the Lord in an intimate, personal relationship, and where all will enjoy forgiveness of sins. And so, many generations later, enter the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And unlike any other Jew who has ever lived, he was able to keep all of the requirements of God's law. He was perfectly faithful. He was ultimately the the preeminent one, the firstborn Son of God who was able to do what Israel was unable to do. And three years after revealing God to the nation, he has one final meal with his twelve disciples on a Thursday evening, that Passover meal, a meal that was originally designed in the context of God's rescue of his people from the bondage of Egypt. And during the supper, Jesus surprises us as he gives this old meal a new meaning and a new interpretation. And he takes that unleavened Passover bread, that bread of affliction… And he breaks it, and he hands it out to his disciples, and he says, this bread points to my body that will be broken for you. And he takes that wine, and he divides it among his disciples, and he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You see, just as the origins of the, new, the old covenant were founded in the shed blood of the Passover lamb The new covenant is rooted in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the one the Scriptures call the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Just like those ancient Israelites were saved from the judgment of death, not only by the slaughter of a lamb, but by their faith demonstrated in the application of the blood to the doorpost of their homes, so salvation from eternal death in hell for sins comes not only through the slaughter of of Jesus, the Lamb of God, but from the blood applied by faith of the person seeking forgiveness for their sins. It's not just the, the, the sacrifice made, it's the sacrifice applied. The death of Jesus does nothing for no one who refuses to place their faith in the blood and the promises of God through that blood. And after that Passover meal, Jesus does something else surprising. He stoops down low as a servant in extreme humility, and He washes the feet of His disciples, and He charges them to love one another as He has loved them. And that washing of the feet, like the Last Supper, is pointing to the great act of love that He's going to do for them in just a few hours. He will again condescend Himself as a servant, not to wash feet, but to be hung. In extreme humility, He would be nailed to a cross, giving up His life for their sake. The firstborn dying. Jesus says, love one another as I've loved you. And His death will be the thing that will make it possible for them to obey that command, because His broken body on the cross and His shed blood inaugurates and purchases and secures the new covenant for His people. That new covenant, which unlike the old covenant, will fix every, fix the very thing that is wrong with the people, which is their sin-enslaved hearts, and it'll solve their biggest problem eternal death in judgment for their sins at the hands of an angry God. As the punishment sinners deserves is transferred to Jesus, as He hangs naked and bleeding from that cross, God's anger and wrath is pouring down on Him, not for what He did, but for what they did, indeed, for what we did. Because this offer of rescue of deliverance from sin's slavery and sin's punishment, this glorious covenant that God said He would make with Israel is suddenly and gloriously seen to be inclusive of all who would believe, of every tribe and tongue and nation. That's why the Apostle Paul goes on to write in the book of Ephesians, "'Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles, you non-Hebrews, you non-Jews in the flesh,' that you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, creating in Himself one new man in place of the two and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In Romans 9, Paul puts it another way when writing to Gentile believers. He says that you have become grafted into the people of God through faith. And so the original Exodus turns out to be just a a picture of a greater exodus, a greater rescue from a greater bondage by a mediator and prophet greater than Moses. God's wrath has passed over all who trust in Jesus for rescue. And if you count yourself among the many who have trusted the blood of the Lamb, then this meal that we are about to have tonight is for you. And like the original Passover, this communion meal is a look back… And it's a look forward. It's a look back to the afflictions of Christ and the thing that has saved us from sin. But it's also a look ahead because Jesus said to His disciples, I will not eat this meal until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes.